Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a sermon from Peter Lightheart on Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. This sermon was recently preached at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and we think it's a good example of a Theopolitan way of reading and preaching the Bible. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened and encouraged by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 6, the first 11 verses of that chapter. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with the voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of of scales in his hand, and I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen or green horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should wait for rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been, should be completed also. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this revelation of Jesus Christ, for this revelation of your work in history. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would guide us by your Spirit as we seek to understand these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians often read the book of Revelation as a book about the distant future, or sometimes about the very near future. Christians read the book of Revelation as a book that's about things, that bizarre things that are going to happen just before the end of time. Some Christians read the book of Revelation and think, well, these are bizarre things that are not going to happen quite yet, but when the time comes, then these bizarre things are going to start happening. Other Christians read the book of Revelation and say that these bizarre things are already beginning to happen. You can just read the newspaper every, every day and you can see that all the things in Revelation are already happening. The time is at hand. The end is upon us. Uh, The end of the world is coming. 
That's a fundamental misreading of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a first century book, a set of revelations and visions given to one of the apostles, John, and it's speaking about things that are going to take place shortly after they are delivered and revealed to John. Jesus says that at the beginning of the book and again at the end of the book, the book of Revelation is a book of the New Testament. We should never forget that. It's not some strange floating text apart from our Bibles. It's a book of the New Testament, and it has the same concerns as the rest of the New Testament. It's concerned about the glory of Jesus Christ. It's concerned about the church. It's concerned about the prospect and the progress of the gospel in the world. It's concerned about the witness of the disciples of Jesus. And when we keep those constraints in mind, then a lot of things clear up for us as we try to make sense of some of the truly bizarre things that the book of Revelation shows us. We can think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse that I've just read about. These are indeed the four horsemen of the apocalypse because they are four horsemen and they are in a book called the Apocalypse. So they are the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. That's a perfectly good designation for these horsemen. But usually the four horsemen of the Apocalypse is understood to mean these are things that are about to happen. They're going to happen shortly before the end. When we see these things happening, when we see wars and rumors of wars, when we see famines, when we see earthquake and pestilence and all kinds of uh, natural and uh, political evils occurring, then we know that the end is nigh. And that, again, is simply a misreading, uh, not only of this passage, I think it's a misreading of what the New Testament teaches about the coming end that is in, vi- in view in the, uh, in the first century. The end that is in view uh, uh, among the apostles is not the end of the world, but the end of the old order. The idea that this, these four horsemen and these natural and political evils are a prelude to the end doesn't match what Jesus says in his own prophecy about the end. In all of the three, first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus predicts the end of something. He predicts the end of the current order of things. And when he talks about these kinds of signs, like wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, He says, these are not signs of the end. Nation will rise against nation. There will be wars and rumors of war. This is not the end. Stay calm. There will be famines in various places. This is not the end. This is the beginning of birth pangs. Even within the scope of the first century prophecies, these are not signs of the end. These are things that this is the beginning of the shaking of the world. This is the beginning of the collapse of the old order. It's, these are not signs of the end of the world, of the end of that world, the end of the world as they knew it. If you remember the last time I preached on Revelation, the end of the world as they knew it is what's coming, but these are not signs of the end. Well, what are they? What are these four horsemen supposed to represent? We should read Revelation as if it were written in sequence. We should read it as if it were a book, which it is, with a natural flow of events. What has just happened just before these four horsemen are revealed? What's happened is that John has been caught up into heaven. John sees a worship service going on. He enters into the angelic liturgy. There are cherubim that are worshiping. There are ancient ones called elders who are sitting on thrones. They're worshiping. And John is able to observe this worship service perpetually going on 
in heaven. But there's something wrong in heaven. There's something that is not as it should be. Heaven, as I pointed out several months ago when I last preached, a couple months ago, heaven has a history. Things change in heaven. And one of the things, that the thing that's wrong in heaven is that there's a book that's sealed and closed and there's no one in heaven or earth or under the sea who's able to open it. The book is at the right hand of the one on the throne. It's sealed up. And whatever this book contains, it contains things that you want to have unsealed, you want to have unleashed on the world. As long as the book is sealed up, these things are not going to be unleashed. God's promises and the prophecies of His kingdom are not going to be realized as long as this book stays closed. It's sealed and closed, and there is no one in heaven or earth or under the sea who can open it. That's the crisis in heaven in chapter 5. And then a lamb appears. The Lion of Judah, looking like a lamb, appears, and he is worthy to open the book. In case you're confused, the Lamb, Lion of Judah, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who can take the book. He's the one who can open the seals. He's the one who can unleash all of God's promises, the whole plan and program of God for the history of the world. Jesus unleashes when he takes the book and begins opening the seals. What are we looking at in chapter 5? Once the point, once somebody points it out, as Jim Jordan did to me many years ago, once somebody points it out, it's pretty obvious. First you have a heaven where there is not a lamb, and then you have a heaven when there, where there is a lamb. What's happened in between? Obviously the lamb has appeared in heaven. The lamb has ascended into heaven. What John is seeing in chapter 5 is the ascension of Jesus into heaven. John was on the mountain with the other apostles, watching Jesus depart from earth and go up into a cloud and enter into heaven. And now in vision, many years later, he's able to go back to that moment and see the same events, the ascension of Jesus, from the top side. He sees the Lamb appear in heaven, and he sees what happens when the Lamb appears. The Lamb appears, and he receives the book, and he begins to open it. Whatever is going on in chapter 6, whatever these horsemen represent, is something that follows on the ascension of Jesus. That means they're not signs of the end. They're signs of the enthronement and the exaltation of the Lamb. What might that be? What is the sign that the Lamb is enthroned and exalted in heaven? When Jesus goes up into heaven, what comes out of heaven almost immediately? Remember, the book of Revelation is a book of the New Testament. We shouldn't be looking for strange puzzles. If Jesus goes into heaven and then something comes out, then what we're looking at is the Spirit being poured out on the earth. I think that's what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 6, the first eight verses. The four horsemen are the horsemen of the Spirit. This is about the Spirit's work leading the church, riding the church into battle, and the spread of the gospel in the early days of the Christian church. Sound odd? That the Spirit would be riding a war horse into battle? The Spirit is that kind of Spirit? The Spirit is a comforter, right? Well, John 16, that we read just a moment ago, tells us that the Spirit is given to the world to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit carries out a a, a legal defense for the apostles, for the disciples of Jesus, for us. 
He is our defender. He's our helper at law. But he's a prosecutor for the world. That's what Jesus says. The Spirit comes in order to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What we see in Revelation 6 is the Spirit riding out to carry out that judicial case against the world that opposes Jesus. What's he riding? If this is the Spirit presented as a rider on a horse, what is the horse that he's riding? Well, I think Zechariah 10, another kind of apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible, gives us a clue. Zechariah 10 tells us that the Lord of hosts is going to visit his flock, his flock of mild, frightened sheep, and he's going to make of them his war horse. He's going to make of his flock a horse that he will take into battle. Judah is the war horse of the Lord. When Israel goes out to battle, trusting in the Lord to fight for them, they are the war horse and the Lord is riding upon them. He's exalted on their praises, exalted on their shoulders. They're not winning the battle. The Lord is winning those battles. What we see in Revelation 6 is the Spirit riding out on the war horse of the church. This is a Pentecostal scene. After the exaltation of Jesus, the Spirit comes at Pentecost and begins to ride out in conquest. And what happens? Well, what happens here is what happens every time the Spirit empowers the gospel to spread in the world. The Spirit goes out on a white horse, conquering and to conquer. The gospel is itself a message of the victory of God. That's the announcement that we have, that Jesus is God's Son who has triumphed over sin and death and the devil. That's the message we have to preach. It's a message of conquest. And here, here we see the Spirit riding the horse of the church, riding the war horse of the church, conquering and to conquer. Every time the, the gospel goes out into the world, it meets opposition. Every time the gospel is preached, there is division and war. Jesus didn't come with uh, peace, he said. I don't come to bring peace, I come with a sword. I come to divide fathers from sons, mothers from daughters, mother-in-laws, mothers-in-law from daughters-in-law, brother from brother. When my gospel is preached, there can be some people who accept it and some people who hate it and resist it. Jesus is a point of a conflict within Israel. And every time the gospel is preached in the power of the Spirit, it rides, the Spirit rides on a red horse. As he goes out conquering, he brings division, he brings war, he brings battle. The Spirit goes out as the black horse, on the black horse, bringing famine, barley and wheat. (coughs) Excuse me, barley and wheat are so rare, so scarce, that it takes a day's wages to get a, or a week's wages to get a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. Prices are rising because the supply of wheat and barley has been deprived, has been depleted. But it's not a complete famine. Notice in verse 6, there's a famine of wheat and barley, but the oil and the wine are left untouched. There's no depletion of the oil and the wine. There's a depletion of the wheat and the barley. There's a partial famine. There's a famine on some people, people who depend on barley and wheat. Those who have oil on their heads and who drink wine are prospering. They are left untouched by the famine. Whenever the Spirit goes out, He goes out conquering. He goes out dividing, uh, even um, within families. 
And every time he goes out, he depletes one side. He depletes those who oppose him. He causes a famine of the word, a famine of resources, a famine of goods with those who oppose him, while he replenishes and supplies the people of wheat, uh, people of oil and wine, those who are christened, those who bear the name of Christ, those who sit at the feast of wine with Jesus. They're untouched by the famine. And when the Spirit goes out, he brings death. Does that seem shocking? Spirit is a spirit of life. Well, think back to the book of Judges. Think what happens when the Spirit clothes a judge. Somebody is going to get hurt as soon as the Spirit comes and clothes a judge. He clothes Gideon, and Gideon goes out and, and fights. He clothes Samson, and Samson kills something. He clothes uh, Saul, and Saul goes out to battle against the Ammonites. Well, it's Old Testament. The Spirit doesn't do that anymore. Now the Spirit is the Spirit of life, right? Well, remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts who lied to the Holy Spirit and died at the feet of the apostles. The Spirit is the Spirit of life, but the Spirit also brings death uh, to those who oppose Jesus. This is the vision of what is happening in the early centuries, the early days of the Christian church, and it's what happens every time the gospel goes out. Every time the gospel goes out, the church is the war horse of the Spirit, riding out, conquering and to conquer, creating division, depleting those who oppose Jesus, and replenishing and supplying those who don't, and then ultimately prosecuting the final, uh, uh, prosecuting a death, a judgment of death against those who, uh, who oppose the gospel. This is not the end of the world. What we're seeing in the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, is the beginning of something, the beginning of God beginning to shake down the old world, the world of the old covenant, in order to bring in the new creation, in order to bring the new Jerusalem. It's not the end, but it is an ending. And the martyrs, the witnesses, the souls of those who gave testimony are aroused to hope by what's happening. The fifth seal is broken, and we see martyrs under the altar, the souls of the martyrs under the altar, where their blood has been spilled on the earth. And they see what's happening. They see that God God is beginning to stir things up. They see that the Spirit has been unleashed by the Lamb, and that the Spirit is riding out, conquering and to conquer. And they hope that now, finally, after centuries of waiting, now they're going to be vindicated. Now their blood is going to be vindicated by judgment against their enemies. This is the first glimpse we get of the martyrs in the book of Revelation. The word martus in Greek simply means a witness, like a witness at law. When uh, we have that word in uh, Isaiah 43, our Old Testament lesson, you are my witnesses. God uh, uh, God is summoning witnesses in his behalf. He's summoning witnesses who can testify against him. He's summoning a great court battle. All of them are martyrs in the literal sense of the Greek term. They are all witnesses. But in Revelation, witness begins to take on the connotations that the word martyr has for us. In the original Greek, martyr did not mean, a martus did not mean somebody who gave his life for his witness. But in Revelation, it begins to take on that connotation. A witness is somebody who doesn't love his life even to death. A witness is somebody who testifies to Jesus in the, even in the face of threats of death. 
He testifies to Jesus even if a beast is telling him to uh, worship idols. He res- uh, a witness to somebody who resists the seductions of the harlot and remains faithful to Jesus in the face of all these threats and seductions. And these witnesses have given their lives for the testimony to the Word of God, the testimony which they have maintained. They've given their witness in earlier centuries. And now that God is beginning to turn things over and beginning to stir things up by sending out the Spirit, now they think finally they're going to be vindicated. And the the message they receive is on the one hand encouraging and on the other hand disappointing. The encouraging part is that they each are given a white robe. Verse 11. White is the color of heaven. White is the color that the ancient ones wear when they're participating in the worship service of heaven. White is the color of the saints once they ascend into heavenly places and join that heavenly liturgy. If they receive a white robe, that's a sign that they're being suited up to join in that heavenly liturgy. Someday they will join, they will ascend from the base of the altar and they will join the angels in heaven. But right now that's just a pledge. It's just a promise. Because they're given a white robe and then told they're going to have to wait a while longer. They're not going to be vindicated just yet. That's the disappointing part of the message. And the disappointment might turn to uh, disbelief, to uh, bewilderment, when they're given the reason why they have to wait a little while longer. They're told they have to wait until there are more martyrs. There aren't enough martyrs yet. They've spilled their blood at the base of the altar, but the the trough at the base of the altar isn't yet filled. (laughs) Excuse me. They have to wait. They have to wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who are to be killed as they have been are also is also completed. More martyrs have to be made. More blood has to be shed before the vindication comes. That's what the beginning of chapter 6 is all about, the famous scene of the marking of the 144,000. Who are those 144,000? Remember, you should read Revelation in order. You've just seen the martyrs told, we're going to have to have more martyrs, and then you see 144,000 who are marked and sealed as priests and sacrifices for martyrdom. Those 144,000 are the additional martyrs that have to give their lives before the cup of the Amorites is filled up, before the sin of the Amorites is filled up and the final judgment comes. And this begins a thread that runs through the entirety of the book of Revelation. The martyrs themselves don't appear all that often. They appear here at the base of the altar. The 144,000 are marked for martyrdom. The 144,000 later appear on Mount Zion, standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. After they're harvested, they're above the firmament. They're joining in the heavenly liturgy. And finally, at the end of Revelation we see the martyrs on thrones, uh, sitting and judging and ruling with Christ through the millennial era. They don't appear all that much, but the martyrs are central and essential to the story of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book about the power of martyrdom. Everything turns on the willingness of witnesses to give their lives for Jesus. Martyr blood is what brings down the harlot Babylon. Martyr blood is poured out on the world. It's the final judgment that shakes the world and makes the city fall. The beast attacks the martyrs, but the beast is overcome by the martyrs who die 
at his hands. Martyr blood ends the world that they knew and makes way for a new world. The blood of the martyrs is the great weapon of the church in the book of Revelation. Witnesses who don't love life even to death. Witnesses willing to give their lives, to sacrifice everything for the sake of Jesus. And for the martyrs themselves, the whole storyline, the trajectory is always upward. They begin at the base of the altar here in Revelation 6. The next time we see them, they're at the top of a mountain. They've climbed up to Mount Zion. The next time we see them, they're above the firmament. Now they've entered into heaven. And then the last time we see them, they're not just in heaven, but they're on thrones. They're on the thrones that have been vacated by the ancient ones, by the angels. And they are ruling in the place of the angels. For a little while, they were lower than the angels. But now in Christ, by sharing in Jesus' sufferings, by sharing in his death, by shedding their own blood in union with Christ, they are exalted into heavenly places and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. The martyrs eliminate the old world. It's because the faithful witness of the martyrs that the old world comes down. The martyrs themselves are constantly exalted until they are the ones that are ruling the creation. The Lord tells Israel, you are my witnesses. Jesus tells the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We are all witnesses, and that means we are all martyrs. Not only in the original sense, we're all martyrs in the sense that we all have to bear witness to Jesus, but we're all martyrs in the more developed sense, that we all have to witness to Jesus even at the cost of loss. Few of us are going to have to face situations where we have to testify to Jesus or lose our lives. Few of us are going to get shed our blood like the martyrs in Revelation 6. But that doesn't mean we aren't martyrs. We are baptized into the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. Every Sunday we sit down at the Lord's table and we drink the body of, uh, we drink the blood of the faithful witness and we're joined once again to his faithful witness, called once again to shed our blood as Jesus did. This won't necessarily take a dramatic form. It may take a very banal humdrum kind of form. We may be called to witness to Jesus in a way that we sacrifice our reputation. You kids may be called to uh, sacrifice your reputation for being cool by witnessing for Jesus. You may have to sacrifice a promotion at work and a, you know, an increase in your salary. You may have to sacrifice a job for faithful witness to Jesus. You might have to sacrifice your family Some converts find, as uh, Jesus told them, told us, some converts find that their families are hostile to Jesus. They turn against them. You may lose everything, all your, your brothers and sisters, father and mother, because of your faithful witness to Jesus. We think in the United States that we've created a political system that's eliminated the need for martyrdom. Everybody can believe whatever they like, and it's all tolerated, it's all good. You can believe and practice just as you like. We believe that we have created a system that kind of falsifies the book of Revelation and the call to martyrdom. It's not true. It's not true. We live in a system that can be just as intolerant as any totalitarian system, just as seductive as any totalitarian system. 
And we need to be ready. We need to count the cost of discipleship because discipleship means martyrdom, witness, even in the face of threat, even in the face of loss. And if we're not prepared for that, we're not prepared to follow Jesus. Because Jesus is a crucified Lord, the Lord who leads us to a cross. And if we follow the way of Jesus, then we have to risk a literal cross, literal loss. We're going to be faithful. Now, now that may sound like a grim message, a grim conclusion, but it's the opposite. Jesus is the faithful priest of his own sacrifice. Old Testament priests were privileged to enter into God's presence and offer animals on their behalf and behalf of the people for sacrifice. Jesus is Jesus priesthood is greater. Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. And so are we. We're called to be priests of our own sacrifice. We don't offer animals anymore. We don't offer other people. We offer ourselves in union with Jesus Christ and are conformed to his priesthood. But there's more. It's not just that we are priests like Jesus when we're faithful martyrs. The end of Revelation shows that the martyrs are exalted to thrones. Adam was created to be a king. Adam was created to ascend from the garden to the high point of the earth, uh, to high point of the land where he would reign with uh, his father, the creator God. In Revelation, it's the martyrs who reach that pinnacle. The martyrs are the fulfilled human beings. They're the most human human beings. They fulfill the Ad- Adamic commission because they sit on thrones with Jesus Christ along with the Father, reigning over all things. That's the destiny of the human race. But it's a destiny we can reach only in Christ. It's a destiny we reach only by following the path of Jesus, the path of martyrdom, the path of the true man, the crucified man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm